You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I have all, always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for um, the indescribable privilege of being able to hold this priceless thing called a Bible in our hands. We thank you for the revelation that it is of you, Lord, what it does and so actively does within our lives, washing us, equipping us, uh, feeding us, Lord, bringing perspective uh, into our lives, grounding us in the truth. It really is a living book. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that you have brought it into human history and that you have brought it into our lives as well. We thank you for the incredible diversity of your word, the incredible diversity of what is on your heart for us to know and to understand from your throne, including what it is that we'll look at here this morning. We pray for your spirit to fill us fresh and anew, to be strong, Lord, as we continue our worship now of you, not only in song, but now in the study of your word. We surrender our hearts and our minds and our spirit to your Holy Spirit and ask that you would speak to us now from these verses. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that the Apostle Paul is now nearing the end of his third missionary journey, and he is in a hurry to make his way to the city of Jerusalem from uh, what was originally the area of Greece, and he is uh, bobbing along on the coast of what we know today as Turkey, uh, making his way uh, toward Israel in order to give a gift to uh, the uh, Jewish church there in Jerusalem, and his hope to, was to be there by the time of the Jewish uh, Feast of Pentecost. And he's under a bit of a time crunch in order to get there uh, and meet that uh, kind of desire of his heart. And so as he's making his way back, he has an opportunity and a desire to speak to the leaders and of the church of Ephesus, where he has just been with them for three years on this missionary journey in establishing a very, very healthy and strong church in Ephesus, He's, and he is making his way to Jerusalem, and in his mind, he is operating under the firm conviction that he will never see them again. He will never come to Ephesus again. So this gives us a sense for the urgency that is upon his heart. He doesn't go into Ephesus to meet with them. He uh, goes to a city by the name of Miletus, which is in a western coastal Turkey, about 20 miles south of Ephesus, and he sends word back to the leaders in Ephesus, I want to meet with you in Miletus. And so they leave as a whole, and they make the 36-mile journey over land to meet Paul in Miletus. And, of course, they came gladly. Most of them had been saved under Paul's 
uh, ministry, and most of them were leaders as a result of, of his uh, training. And Paul wanted to meet with them, again, operating under the idea that he would never see them again. This is a formal kind of handing over of this priceless thing to him called the church of Ephesus over to these leaders, the church being handed over to their uh, leadership and their oversight. But before he does so, he wants to give them some final instruction and some final encouragement and exhortation uh, before he uh, goes on his way. I think it's important to remember again as we looked last week and looking at this uh, sermon that is included here in Acts chapter 20, which is essentially the Apostle Paul uh, giving us, not only them but us today, uh, the Apostle Paul leading a pastor's and uh, church leaders' conference. And, and so he, all of the things that he begins to lay out and instruct them in, I think it's important to notice that he never tells them once in all of it how to outline a sermon or how to organize a church or how to be an effective speaker or how to build a big church or how to have a dynamic uh, ministry. And I think that so often today, I mean, we look at it and we notice that it isn't, and it's apparent that it's not within the sermon, but in those days, nobody thought that any of those things were important enough to talk about or supremely important in the establishment or the guiding uh, of a local uh, church. And so often again today, I think we think can think that these things are the most important in advancing the kingdom of God and growing a healthy church in what is our current uh, ministry model of the United States of America, where the culture is, all success is determined on the basis of nickels and noses. It's on the basis of how many people and how much money. And that same estimation of the health of a church or the success of a local church carries over, not only within the culture, but then carries over into the church, where if we're not alert to that, we then begin to determine these individual works of God known as a church. We determine their success based solely upon uh, the definitions of the culture, and that is on the basis of how many people attend and how great is their budget. Now, Last week, we took note of the first three things that Paul emphasized to these leaders, and first, the importance of uh, his manner of life, that is, the importance in the leadership of a church of their example, of their personal integrity, of their and our godly character, that we actually live the life that we teach and we preach. No one's perfect, but every leader in every church the gap that exists between what we teach from God's Word and what we actually are, that gap should always be narrowing the longer that we walk with the Lord and serve the Lord. It should never become stagnant, and it should never, ever become widening. Without this character and giving attention to our manner of life, no church, if the leadership loses sight of that, 
has any hope of surviving, let alone thriving or becoming influential for the kingdom of God. The second thing that we noticed was uh, the fact that uh, at our core, in Paul's core, but in all leaders, at our core uh, should be whatever our titles are within a church or whatever our responsibilities might be is that we are supremely bondservants that we do not consider ourselves to be too good for God to call upon us to do anything. And there is to be within the leadership, and indeed in any Christian's life, the sense that any and all Christian service is an incredible privilege. But what this speaks to us in, in taking on the mantle of a bondservant and never seeing myself as anything more than that at my core is that again strikes hard at something that is so strong within our culture, and that is the sense of entitlement and this sense of self-importance without which so many people feel they're nothing and nobodies. And here is this idea that I am a bondservant, I am a slave to Christ. He can spend my life however he wants to spend it, and it smashes to smithereens these two characteristics that will ultimately undermine and destroy anyone's calling as a leader in a church, and that is if we give way to the idea that we are entitled to something in this calling or that this is all about our sense of entitlement or an expression of our self-importance. The third thing that we noticed was that our Christian service, in our Christian service, we serve the Lord supremely. That as much as we love people, and we need to love people, that supremely we love Him, and supremely our service is done uh, to Him, and that's who we aim to please even over and above uh, pleasing people, and that keeps our love for people healthy and it keeps it pure, and, and, and it keeps it safe. Paul then continued his exhortations and his encouragements to them, as we see in verse 19, by speaking of the importance of humility. Uh, you notice he said, uh, serving the Lord with all humility. That is, with a humble and a modest opinion of ourselves. And he speaks to the leaders and says, this is what you're to minister out of, a humble and modest opinion of yourselves. Paul would later write in a letter to the church at Ephesus and declare this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, speaking of himself, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see how he describes himself, not for a fact or not because it wasn't a reality within his life, to me who am less than the least of all of the saints. Now, whatever anyone else may say or they may think, uh, it is the realization that we know that the explanation for any uh, position that we may hold in a church 
or any fruit that is born in that church out of the fact that we are leaders within it, that all of that occurs not because we are something great, but solely on the basis of God's grace. I have a friend many of you know, his name is Gail Irwin, and he tells a story that has always resonated with me since the day that I heard it. Uh, Gail was a part of a very large uh, Christian denomination in the United States, and at the time of this event, he was a part of a magazine that that denomination was publishing. And as a part of that magazine that was published on a, a regular basis throughout the year, they would always feature the fastest growing church in that denomination in the United States. And so they traveled and they would interview and then put the article in the, into the magazine and, and so forth. And so they had done with this one particular ministry. Gail was traveling and he was speaking somewhere in the United States and invited to speak. And it, as is the kind of the part of itinerant preachers that way and itinerant uh, uh, speakers, uh, he was checked into a motel room and he turned on the television to Christian television. And lo and behold, there is a Christian person on an interview format interviewing uh, one of the pastors that had been recently uh, featured as the pastor of the fastest growing church in the United States. And the interviewer asked the pastor, um, what do you ascribe uh, this success and all of your growth to? And in that little pause between the end of the question and the man's answer, Gail thought to himself, if he has any other answer than the grace of God, it's over. And unfortunately, he had another answer than the grace of God, and within a year, that church returned uh, to its former size. Everything, any fruit that comes out of any of our lives is solely based upon and a testimony to how gracious God is. Another kind of Galism that I remember him saying uh, through the years in this regard is he said, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me. Uh, that's a healthy attitude uh, in the leadership of, of a church. And Paul, all of his life, he remained in absolute awe of God's use of him. What's fascinating to realize, when you think about all that God used him to do, and you would think that uh, he would have begun very, very humble and then, you know, fought with pride the rest of the way or began to, you know, kind of take some kudos along the way. But Paul not only remained in awe all of his life for the grace of God expressed in using him to be an influence for the kingdom of God, but he not only remained in that way, his awe did not diminish over time, but it only increased. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he wrote to the church at, at Corinth early in his ministry, and he described himself, for I am the least of the apostles. Later, as I've already read to you, when he would write to the church at Ephesus, he described himself as to me who am less than the least of all of the saints. But then very, very late in his life, 
Before he dies a martyr's death, he wrote to Timothy and he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I think that it's good as we look at this subject of humility and we look at it in the light of our own service to the Lord. It's certainly good for me to do it, and I'll gladly do it in this moment. But to ask ourselves in the privacy of our own hearts, do we have any other explanation for God's use of us in terms of influence within the body of Christ and in the world other than the grace of God? And if I believe it's because of anything other than the grace of God, I am being completely deceived about the reason that he is using me or you or using us and to just throw it off this morning. It is all the grace of God in each of our lives. Chuck Smith likened our, I remember listening to him, and I, thought, I think a lot about Pastor Chuck in looking through this sermon because uh, so much of what I've learned through the years and who I am is because of his influence upon my life as a pastor. But he used to tell the story, I remember him telling it at a pastor's conference in terms of all of us as pastors and, you know, the, trying to knock down this idea of being a big shot or not walking in humility and so forth and losing sight of the grace of God. And he said, what this really is, is all we're doing is just picture in your mind a sunny, uh, you know, Saturday afternoon, and here you have this father of a young boy, and he goes out into the backyard in order to mow the lawn, and he starts the Honda mower, the Toro mower, or whatever it might be, and he begins to mow the high, thick lawn. And then right behind him, his little boy is following him with a plastic lawnmower, and what is true in that scene is true of every single one of us as we serve the Lord. God's doing all of the heavy lifting. He's mowing the lawn. We're just like got this little plastic mower following behind him. You say, why does he bother to use us at all? He likes the company. He likes the fellowship. That's what it's all about. And, and, and so uh, that realization of all of that. Now, the appeal and the influence of, uh, the, uh, of humility in a leader in the church, as we spoke about a number of weeks ago when we were looking at uh, the life of Apollos and the place of humility within uh, his life. But I'll make mention for those of you who weren't here, but it, it fits so perfectly in here. A number of years ago, they gave a, uh, uh, they surveyed uh, uh, Christians over with this question, what is the single greatest thing that you desire in a pastor? And you would think in the culture in which we live that it would be eloquence. You would think that it would be charisma. You would think it would be great administrative ability and so forth. But none of those were the answers. The single greatest uh, response to that was, what do you desire most in a pastor? The answer was humility. It was humility. 
And this confirms uh, really for us, as Paul is talking about the importance of it, Apollos in his life and so forth, the response of God's people to that question, it confirms the appeal and influence of humility, the importance of it above all these other things in terms of Christian service. Because the alternative to humility in church leadership is spiritual pride. And that's always going to lead to an awful lot of problems. We all like humility. And we especially like humility in our leaders, wherever we might see them, but certainly among leaders within the body of Christ. A humble person is a person that's just easy to be around. You like to be around someone like that. Pride people, pride, proud, a proud person is very difficult to be around, very taxing kind of uh, person. It's a humble person in life that we root for. We want them to be successful. We stand behind them. It's the American way, isn't it? We root for the underdog. We want to see them, despite their humble beginnings or the humility of their life, to rise up way above what you would think that uh, humility would allow them to do that. We root for the humble uh, person. And then I think most significantly, in the context of what we're looking at here for leaders and really for all of us as Christians as well, is that it is the humble person that people are willing to trust and to make themselves vulnerable to, and then to give that person a place of influence within their life. We tend to be very guarded with proud people uh, because proud people handle people in a certain way. But it is, on, it is only to humble people that we give them a place of influence in our lives, which is what we're aiming at in terms of leadership within a church, spiritual influence in, in helping uh, people. I remember uh, attending a meeting many, many years ago with Pastor Chuck Smith. And I was a very new pastor, and it was held in Southern California, a very large conference hall. It wasn't an auditorium like this. There was tables set up, chairs all around. It was several dozen people, uh, pastors, and we were going to meet in that room and, and gather around the table in layers around it and so forth. And he was going to uh, speak to us. And I remember coming into the room a little bit early. Virtually everyone was already in the room. And they're talking and they're fellowshipping and drinking water or coffee or whatever it was that be being served uh, that morning. And as I was standing there uh, watching all of this and listening and talking to someone, I had a clear eye shot to the entrance uh, of the room. And I'm talking to someone and I noticed that Pastor Chuck walked into the room at a particular moment. But everybody in the room was already engaged with somebody else. They were already talking or interacting uh, with somebody else. And so uh, nobody rushed up to shake his hand or to greet him or any of those uh, kind of things. And so uh, and, uh, and just like anyone uh, who 
would come into a room and not even have like a friend within the room. And so he comes to the doorway and, and he looks around, everybody's engaged, and he looked kind of uh, around a little bit, looked at his hands and his feet, and then he kind of walked over to the table that was off by the side to get a glass of water. Not that he needed a glass of water, he just needed something to do, you know, at, at the moment, didn't know what to do with himself. And I'll tell you, at that moment, I mean, there was an awkwardness that I saw in him. Uh, the awkwardness in a crowd that you would expect from uh, someone like me or anyone else that had been in, uh, in the room, but uh, not from him and not in the light of who he was and how God had, he, had used him. And the awkwardness spoke to me of his humility. It spoke to me of his humanness. And just that event there endeared him uh, to me. It wasn't a, a sense of a big shot within him at all. And to observe the man, uh, not merely in the pulpit, but in life uh, itself, uh, in the pulpit, away from it, in this regard, it is interesting to notice this concerning, uh, concerning uh, Chuck and, and to look at this is a humble man. Now, in this regard, it's interesting to notice that Paul didn't speak solely of humility, but he speaks of all humility in the passage. That word all is an interesting one, and it carries the idea of every kind of. And so ta Paul talks about here every kind of humility uh, that could be expressed in every environment, every form that humility could take it marked uh, his, uh, his life, every area of his life. Now, one of the things, uh, of course, is that pride is an occupational uh, hazard for pastors and for church leadership. It just is. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, many of you might remember that when God gave a, a series of commands to those who were going to be kings, even on a secular level, kings uh, over his people, and he gave them three principal prohibitions. They were not to multiply to themselves gold. They were not to multiply to themselves wives. And they were not to multiply to themselves horses with the idea of developing a military that was so great that they would no longer uh, need to depend upon God, but that they could depend upon themselves. In other words, it was a warning against uh, self-confidence and a warning against pride. And so you have the, the uh, famous kind of uh, trinity of exhortations to all church leaders, and that is to be on guard and be careful concerning money, women, and pride, because all three of them can easily take you out. And I think that for the most part, most pastors that I know, and certainly concerning uh, myself as well, well, in terms of the opposite sex, of course, everybody's got to have their antennas up and be very careful in that particular area of their life. Uh, and so, all, all, it's an all alert in, in terms of being proper there. And then only slightly below it is a concern for uh, an integrity related to money and related to God's resources. But that third one, pride, in a culture that is as proud as our culture, it almost gets a free ride 
even within leadership sometimes, unless we're alert to it and we're as ruthless with it as we would be concerning the other two things. One of the difficult things about pride, it's every bit as dangerous as the other two. In fact, maybe even more so in its own way. But the, wor- the difficult thing about pride is the first thing that it does in our lives, all of us as Christians, is it removes our capacity to identify it. We become too proud to know that we're proud, and now we're really in trouble related to that. That's why you have the miracle of the Word of God, the mirror of the Word of God that speaks to us, shows us who, what we are and what we are and what we aren't and so forth, and it's honest with us, and it's our lone protection with the Holy Spirit against pride. But pride is an occupational, so to speak, a danger of church leadership, and to lose sight of the fact that God has called most of us, not all of us, but most of us, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, simply because we were the weakest and the most foolish and the most base and the most unworthy and the most ignoble uh, person that he could find to use so that when he then uses us, everyone would realize that that is what's coming out of our lives, the good of it, is nothing to do with us, but it is completely what we call today a God thing, and that he would receive the glory for the good that happens in our life, and the glory would not be passed on to the human instrument. Again, uh, concerning Pastor Chuck Smith, of course, Like everybody else, I uh, simply marveled at his uh, gift to teach. And when I think about him, I think of him supremely as a pastor, and I think of him as a teacher. But one of the things that impacted me so much about his life, as I've mentioned before, but here I will in a different way, was his humility as well. He was a very, very humble man and uh, who God uh, used in such an incredibly uh, powerful way. And yet I never knew him once, not in private, not in pulpit, uh, not in the thousands of hours that I have listened to him in terms of his teaching, ever take any of the glory to himself and rob God of that glory. And when you stop and you think about it, in terms of his life, the Apostle Paul's life as an example in this regard. I think about how wonderful it was, and to have him as an example as a pastor, especially in the light of how mightily God uh, used him. God used him to bring tens and tens and tens of thousands of people to Christ over the course of his life. I mean, staggering in its own right. He was, in my opinion, the finest Bible teacher that I have ever heard. I mean, conservatively uh, impacting hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. Late in his life at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, 
when they would have the website up, the kind of infrastructure that they needed for the website is that he would teach on a Sunday morning, and then the whole structure behind the website had to be so great as to be ready for that Bible study to be now downloaded by hundreds of thousands of people every single week, and a million people, if my memory serves me right, in the course of a week. This is the kind of influence that he had through the gift of teaching. But I think sometimes people forget, and some of you remember, he was also the founder of Maranatha Music, which God used to simply revolutionize the area of worship within the church where it went to becoming more expressive of a personal relationship uh, toward God and worshiping God in that way, uh, in that personal uh, kind of way, and it revolutionized Christian worship around the world, and its influence uh, still dominates uh, worship today. He was the California face of the last great revival that the United States uh, has experienced, the Jesus movement. And yet, I never saw him once give expression to any personal pride concerning any of it. I never heard him or saw him touch the glory for all of it that belongs to God alone. And what an example He continues to be in my life in that regard with a far uh, smaller stewardship. Now, concerning this area of pride, um, uh, Pastor Chuck used to warn us as pastors and leaders uh, never to touch uh, God's uh, glory or the glory that belonged solely to Him. And he would remind us, never draw people to yourself within the idea of then pointing them to God, making yourself the celebrity, making yourself the focus of, uh, of, of everything, and then I will make myself the most attractive person within the church in and, and some charismatic kind of way, whatever it might be. I'm talking about personal charisma, and so forth. I'll draw people to me, and then I will point them uh, to uh, God. And Chuck used to always uh, remind us to get out of the way and point them directly to God. Because if we begin to think, I'll draw people, uh, first of all, to myself, based upon personality or charisma or whatever it might be, and then I'll point them uh, to God. It's too easy for the glory to stop with me and then never quite make it uh, to God. And I happen to think that that's a very, very good ministry word that he taught us in any age. It was important to hear when he spoke it to us, but I think more than ever we need to hear it today in our culture as it continues to grow more and more enamored by the cult of personality, the celebrity status, and what is required to get a following, and the idea that it works in the world, it can also work in the church. The people have been conditioned to follow this kind of thing in the world, and we can use the same thing upon them when they come uh, into the church. 
And then the temptation is to follow in that example and, and think that the only way to build a successful church today is to build it upon uh, personal charisma and, uh, and a man's personality or a leader's personality or for the pastor to become a religious personality as opposed to just a simple minister and a servant and who not believing that God, as is, is the temptation, I think, increasingly today, not believing that God, as He describes Himself in the Bible, as He presents Himself in the Bible, is attractive enough in and of Himself, in and of itself, to catch the attention of the culture. But somehow I can think that I can become more attractive to a sinner, to a man or a woman in need of forgiveness, a man or a woman in a search for God than God Himself, and I will deflect their attention for even a moment when God is waiting there to be viewed with an unveiled face by every person that wants to come uh, to him and this whole idea that somehow, which is behind the whole cult of personality as it moves into the body of Christ, that somehow the idea is that God isn't cool enough, He isn't hip enough, He isn't attractive enough to attract the culture itself. He needs a little bit of help. So I'll draw them to myself, and then I'll explain to them that God isn't quite as much like me, and then break them for the news that, you know, that here's God, here's the one you're looking for, but He's not going to be, you know, quite what you're, uh, you're looking for. But it's a very dangerous business to claim to represent God and then to compete with God for the attention and the hearts of His people. And I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with a person having a great, big, beautiful, sanctified personality. Be, as, be who and what we are in our service to the Lord. And there are some people who are just naturally very charismatic. They, well, <laughs> can I say? But they're naturally very, very appealing. They are naturally very hip. They are naturally very cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'll tell you this. Once a person is aware of their coolness and their hipness. They're no longer cool. Cool people never know they are cool. Everybody else knows it about them, and then the rest of everyone else, they're only posers. And, and like your worst nightmare of going to junior high, at least it is mine, going to my locker and my underwear. I mean, you just get exposed. Anyone that is pretending to be cool when they're not cool, that's evident to everyone in the room except for them. But there are people who are. There's nothing wrong with that. The idea is to be who we are and what we are, uh, but not to deliberately go in, in this way, whether a person has this kind of a personality or they don't have this kind uh, of a personality, uh, but, but not to feel like I need to become the attraction then that it, uh, upon levels introduces a person uh, to, uh, to God. 
It is the utmost expression, I think, of pride to be convinced on any level that I am free to compete with God for the attention of His people anywhere, and nowhere more so than in His sanctuary. God is to be the sole focus and the sole attraction of any church that is being operated and overseen in His name. He wrote famously uh, through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Jesus declared, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I say it again, God is to be the sole attraction, the sole focus and attention of a church or of the church as a whole, because that is exactly what heaven is going to be, and church is intended to be a little taste of heaven, a little foretaste of heaven. And in heaven, God is the sole attraction in that environment. Turn with me, if you would, to the right in your Bible, to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter uh, 4, where we get a description of that heaven we're talking about. I'd like to read it to you. Sometimes we get a little frustrated with the Bible and that it doesn't tell us more about heaven, uh, as much about heaven as we would like to know about uh, heaven. And I'm in agreement with Vance Havner, a famous preacher who declared that the reason God hasn't told us more about heaven is it would make our pilgrimage here even more difficult uh, in waiting to get there. He said it would be like a little boy sitting in front of a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. And I'm inclined to believe with him, but uh, believe him, on, agree with him on that. Notice in uh, Revelation chapter 4, and this is heaven. We, we know more about heaven than we realize. And notice the description and the focus upon God. And after these things I looked, John said, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must come to pass after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne was 24 elders, and on the thrones I saw 20, or 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And therefore the throne was there, there was, uh, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. 
And the first living creature was like a lion. The second uh, living creature was like a calf. The third living creature was like, had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they are and were created. We cannot pray, as we so often do on the Saturday night before a church service like this, and then on the Sunday morning, and even moments before uh, we come out to begin the service, we cannot pray for this service to be uh, a little foretaste uh, of uh, heaven without the sole focus of our attention uh, being God and all of that being uh, born witness to by the Holy Spirit. It is Him that makes the church what it is, and nobody else does, and nothing compares to Him, to His presence, and what He brings with His presence. And the exaltation of man in this environment is always at the expense of the exaltation of God. And this is the danger of pride within leaders within the church. It always diminishes the fullness of God, what God wants to be, and He alone can be among His people. I remember reading a quote by A.W. Tozer in this regard, and he said, I am of the opinion that we should not be concerned about working for God until we have learned the meaning and the delight of worshiping Him, a reverence for God, a fear uh, of God and for God. A number of years ago, I read what is one of my favorite quotes uh, concerning ministry, and I take those quotes and I put them on my computer under, on a page called Quotes, and pages and pages and pages of them, and I don't know that I've ever used this one before, uh, and then perhaps this is the time uh, to unveil it, but I love it because it speaks to the very thing that we're talking about here this morning, and it concerns a gentleman by the name of Robert Dick Wilson, and he was a very, very famous, very celebrated uh, Old Testament scholar who served at Princeton uh, Seminary at the beginning of the last century when it really was a seminary and, and honored God at the time, who uh, would graduate one class after another after another out of, out of the seminary. And whenever he would hear that a, an alumnus was returning uh, to the seminary in order to uh, preach now uh, there, he would slip 
quietly into the back of Miller Chapel, and he would listen uh, to the man uh, teach the Word of God, and he made it his rule uh, to listen only once. And here's what he had the reason for it. Quote, he said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. Now, no mention of charisma, no mention of natural talent, no mention of cult of personality. Here was a seasoned saint that looked and said, if that man understands God or woman and understands their place in relationship to God and keeps their heads screwed on straight in the course of their ministry, their humility will take them where none of these other things can. And he was absolutely right about it. Perhaps the reason that I take so much time last week and again this week to focus on Paul's preaching to leaders is because I am concerned about our current secular culture creeping into our Christian culture, and I keep an awful lot to myself through the years because I consider this a, to be a place to be a sanctuary and a refuge from hearing about all of the problems and this and that and so forth, and because we've all got enough problems within our life. But sometimes things just get to a point where you just got to stop for everyone's protection and just re-examine these things that Paul is talking about and what I think is kind of a, ins the insanity of the, the current ministry uh, environment in, in the Western world, in the United States uh, especially. And so much of it uh, does the very thing that all of this does within the culture and what the culture does, and that is to nurture pride and to nurture uh, arrogance and to do so at the neglect of humility and, and how little is spoken about the power of humility, the necessity of humility, how it pleases God, how quick He is to exalt in that kind of a situation. And my concern is that in the current ministry environment where there is so much the exaltation so often of the flesh and of natural talent and charisma so often to the neglect of God, the idea that I will draw them to myself and then point them to God. My concern is not to tear anyone else down. I don't care about that. That's not my place. My concern is for the young man or the young woman who sits and thinks about God's call upon their life in positions of leadership within a church and to think in the light of the culture that this is supremely about being hip or cool or being attractive or charismatic or relevant as opposed to it simply being about exalting God and remaining humble while we do that. And whatever call God has upon your life and you're discouraged 
because of the lack of your nobleness. You are not many mighty. You're not many powerful or noble. You, you, You match that description of what God typically calls, not always, but typically calls into leadership for His glory. And to realize that for you to look at it and to say, I can't buy into what it is that I see all around me that disheartens me and makes me think there's no place for someone like me, though I know God has called me. No, if your motive is to make much of God and the chief characteristic of your life is not natural talent, but it is humility, those two things will take you where a mountain of this other stuff will never take you in terms of influence for the kingdom of God, both inside the church and outside the church as well. It's an important encouragement. So the brightest and the best don't get lost in the tide pools of what we find ourselves in the middle of today. If God had started 30 years ago and called me to become a pastor in this hour, in this day, in this ministry environment, as opposed to when he did it 30 years ago and everything was different, I would be currently putting in my 54th year at Pacific Bell as a cable splicer. Everything has been turned on its head, and I trust that this look at things this morning will become a protection and encouragement uh, to each of us in God's call upon our lives today. Don't oversell, under, uh, undersell your zeal and your love for God and the humility with which you carry yourself and with which you see yourself. Let's stand together and we'll pray. I have a whole other sermon. I only got through half the sermon here this morning, but you'll be thankful that we stop uh, here with this. Thank you, Father, for this passage. Thank you for just the two words that we looked at today all humility. And Lord, when we look at Paul and we see him in the Scriptures and we see him going here and going there and we see all of the verbs of his life, all of the action, all of the movement, and then that tendency to think that we know something about him by virtue of all of that. And we can know all of that and know nothing about him and what really made him tick, and what really made him the instrument of influence, an influence that carries right into the room today in terms of the kingdom of God. And we thank you for this glimpse at his heart. We thank you for this glimpse at what is important to you in your leaders and in all of our lives as Christians, Lord, 
the things that first of all bless you and then the things that allow you to use us in the way that you desire. I pray personally, Lord, for each person in this room that is being talked out of, mostly by the voices in their own head and their own heart, of taking a step for you, of believing your call upon their lives because they know they have no hope of being successful in a cult of, of personality and in a culture in which uh, stardom is so highly esteemed. And I pray, Lord, that you would use our time this morning uh, to protect that calling, to silence their own voices and the voices of others, and to give them the boldness to take that step that is so needed and is the first step on the most wonderful thing they will ever experience in life, and that is the fulfillment of your call and of your plan. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you for its sanctifying influence. Thank you for its health-giving influence. Thank you for the feeding that is found in it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.